We start today talking about the number one craved food in the world. It's not pizza. It's not potato chips. It's chocolate. Today is International Chocolate Day. Today happens to be the birthday of Milton S. Hershey, as in the American chocolatier. And when I think of chocolate, when I think of chocolate, I think of one classic TV commercial. When you consider how big it is... You know what makes it so big? All those peanuts! It's not surprising there's so much inside. It's that big chunk of fudge. I'm telling you, it's all that caramel. It's that big chunk of fudge. Oh, Henry, what makes it big? makes it good. All right, I'm going back to the 80s there. It is the big chunk of fudge that makes an O. Henry bar so good, right? That classic TV commercial is where my mind goes when I think of chocolate. Now, for my partner, she's a little bit different. When she thinks of chocolate, it's more like... right my partner she loves chocolate and according to science daily chocolate is the number one craved food in the world she has lots of company in that boat but where does it come from who should we be thanking for creating something that we love so so much and that's where our first guest comes in dr alex marangoni is joining us this afternoon dr marangoni is a professor a chemist within the department of food science at the university of guelph and he's been studying chocolate well for just shy of 20 years now dr marangoni thank you so much for being here today no, thank you very much for having me. I have to ask you off the top, who should we be thanking, you know, for the food that we crave so much? Oh, my God, chocolate is a long story. But it's funny that you mention Hershey because Milton Hershey is, uh, is the one who introduced milk chocolate to North America really? as early as 1905. I did not know that. Okay, yeah. so he's, he's the pioneer of the milk chocolate craze. No, absolutely, because it was all in Europe at the time, and... Uh, and he's the first guy who actually brought it in 1905, not too much later than two famous people, Nestle yes. and, uh, and Partner, created the milk chocolate in Europe. Ah, okay. So, so, okay. so milk chocolate started in Europe, then comes to North America. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but long before that, who were the first people eating chocolate, or should I say drinking chocolate? Oh, my God, that's correct. It's, uh, you're, you're mentioning our Central American uh, friends, the Olmec civilization, uh, that was before even the Mayans. And the guys would collect the seeds from naturally from the forest, and they were even used as money. You could really? exchange. You, the goods could be bought with cocoa seeds because they were in such high demand. And, yes, only the aristocracy and the rich were able to, uh, to eat the chocolate, which was collected from the natural forest ground on a metate, a big stone grinder, and then um, thrown into boiling water to melt. You can imagine the, a ground chocolate seed is about 50% fat and 50% cocoa solids. And then they would have these jars and throw them from a height and create this foam of hot chocolatey water. No sugar, nothing, just the bitter stuff. And that would be fed to the, uh, well, given to the aristocracy, and, uh, and they would sip it. So they'd be sipping fatty hot foamy chocolate <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it was not sweet though it was bitter right 
Yeah, yeah, it was completely bitter. And even when it was brought, then it was discovered by Cortés, the killer, and uh, brought to Europe and, and Spain and then passed to other European countries. It was like coffee. People go, would go and drink chocolate in this form, sort of a hot chocolate, but not the way we know it today. It would be like full fat and and quite bitter and uh as you can imagine that didn't last very long when they discovered sugar <laughs> that's the first thing they put sugar into and uh, so there's a whole history about coffee houses and chocolate houses in europe where people almost like pubs where people would go and chat like a coffee house these days but imagine if you had the same thing for chocolate house yeah that'd be fantastic i think yeah you know <laughs> It'd be yeah, a lot yeah. of fun for sure. Okay, so so you touched on um, you know, how fat, how fatty the the original kind of bitter uh, hot chocolates were, and yeah. and is that like from a chemist's perspective, chemically speaking, um, is that why humans crave it so much? Is it that fat that we want? You know what? You bring up a really interesting point. People say that uh, besides the fat, and now when the Brits finally put in. Uh, extra cocoa butter and the sugar, and they made it into a tablet, right? Yeah. Uh, that we that we love these days. Uh, it's seemingly the chocolate hits all the flavor sensations, from bitter to sweet to acidic and to more of them. So seemingly it hits, it fires all your senses at the same time. And <laughs> hey, do not underestimate the fact that it's super caloric. So our body is always craving for that. But can you imagine? You, know, you fix the bitterness flavor by adding some sugar make it into a tablet i mean how could you go wrong right? i know you could put it in your back pocket <laughs> then right <laughs> and yeah transport it uh, and uh yeah Oh man! And so, so because you're hitting all of these uh, the, these these sensory um, thing, you know, I, I'm imagining that it's just firing things off in our brain, right? And that's why we crave it so much. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and and you were right. I mean, we always crave for things that are fatty or sugary because uh, because you no, know, we came from a time evolved in a time in which we didn't have too many calories. So anything sweet, anything fatty, and the combination of the two in the form of chocolate is extremely appealing. And, uh, and give us a lot of energy. So allegedly Montezuma II, the big emperor of the Mayas, had um, supposedly, according to the legend, drank 50 cups of chocolate <laughs> before visiting his harem of 100 really? women. Yeah, he, he needed... So that's the ratio, about two cups of, uh, of, of fatty chocolate per woman, I guess. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that comment, Doctor. I really don't. That that's 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 a totally different conversation, I suppose. No, no, no. It's, it's correct. It's in the legend of um, the legend of the, okay. of, of, of the of the of the Mexican Emperor Montezuma just before he got conquered by the Spaniards. Oh, maybe he was tired. Maybe that's why maybe he, was tired, <laughs> he got correct. conquered, right? Oh boy, he was visiting his harem too much. There you go. It must be his own fault, Doctor. I, doctor, I have to ask you how how did you get involved in studying chocolate and looking at the history and kind of learning so many tidbits of information? Well, first of all, it's a fascinating story. I mean, you imagine you're going to study the Olmecs, the Mayans, the Aztecs, and how much value they placed on chocolate. And then the whole mystique. And, and I mean, we love chocolate. Yeah. Everybody loves different grades of chocolate. And from a structural point of view, from food science, I'm a food scientist. I'm, I'm a chemist. And the structure of the chocolate is actually very interest, interesting. Did you know that um, uh, the fat in chocolate is crystalline? So they're crystal. Really? So you can study the crystals. Imagine that. 
it sounds really boring if you tell somebody at a party that you're a chemist and you study crystallography. But if you tell somebody <laughs> that you study the crystals in chocolate, it becomes very, very interesting all of a sudden, right? Yeah, no kidding. And, and then how do you affect the different textures and melting behaviors? And uh, can we, I mean, you don't want to hear this, but did you know that that old Henry bar you like, and a lot of those things are not chocolate bars, they're candy bars oh. in Canada. That's right, because in, in Canada, you can only call chocolate what is 100% chocolate. Otherwise, you can add other fats that make it chocolate tea, but uh, there's things like palm kernel oil and other things that melt not quite like chocolate, but it never gets there, but it's very similar. So those things, notice in your, in, your, in your wrapper, it says candy bar. It doesn't say chocolate bar. That's a good Go point. That is a good point. I have, I, now that you mentioned it, okay. So it has to be 100% chocolate with chocolate. no additives. Okay, okay. So that, that's, uh, I mean, and I think the standard for chocolate, it has to have the cocoa liquor, which sounds interesting. The cocoa liquor is the ground up roasted seed, right? The, yeah. uh, maybe you've had them in, in, in coffee shops and stuff, the ones sometimes you bite into, yeah. and it's just like the roasted seed. So if you grind that up, that's about 50% fat and 50% of the cocoa solids, right? And uh, it can have the cocoa solids, the cocoa butter, sugar, and a little bit of lecithin. And they add the lecithin to be able to, like, mix in nicely the sugar and the fat. Otherwise, it would clump up. Yeah. And, uh, and, then, and then they mix it and mix it and mix it. They grind it to make it really fine and non-gritty. That's super important. They mix it to remove maybe acidic flavors. So if you, for example, taste some chocolates that are really, really acidic, you don't know what's wrong, a lot of it, it has vinegar in it, acetic acid from the fermentation of the of the pulp when they collected it a long time ago, like before they roasted it. So they got to do all those things, the mixing, the grinding, so it's nice and smooth. Then they put it in the uh, in the in the molds, and then they really have to know what they're doing. You've seen the guys with the white hat that are tempering chocolate. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're crystallizing, they're forming the crystals of cocoa butter in such a way as to make the perfect crystal that melts right at the temperature of your mouth. Fascinating. I did not know this much about chocolate, Doctor. This yeah. is, this is so spectacular. If you, get, if, you, if, you, if you get it wrong, you get something that melts in your hand and not in your mouth. There you <laughs> or, go. Or, or never melts. And then it's like you're eating waxy stuff. So they like play so much importance. All these companies, they having properly tempered chocolate that doesn't, if it's properly tempered, doesn't bloom when it forms that white stuff on. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. So, so doctor, where do you think, so we've gone from obviously the, the you know, a, a long time ago with, a, you know, the high fat, um, bitter kind of hot foaming chocolate. And yeah. now we have, you know, milk chocolate introduced in Europe. Of course, it's now here in North America as well. Uh, yeah. do, do, do you see... What do you see as the next evolution of chocolate? Well, there's a good part and a bad part. I mean, you've probably seen uh, many people like to buy the dark chocolates. or yes. I don't like the super, super dark one because it's very bitter. Like, I like a little sugar in mine. But uh, all the combination with different flavors, like with salt, right? Yeah. With hot chili peppers or with orange. So that combination of, uh, of, of, of different flavors, fruit, salt, hot. I really like spiced chocolate. Um, but uh, right now, one of the things that is happening, believe it or not, is that there's just not enough cocoa in the world to supply the demand of chocolate and it's just growing and growing and growing. It's a super popular product. So people are looking at alternative fats to cocoa butter to be able to stretch it, if you may. Uh, I do not know in Canada I wouldn't be able to be called um, chocolate because it would have a fat that is like cocoa butter, yeah. but it's not cocoa butter. So there is a huge uh, thrust out there trying to look for some fats that can sort of stretch it, stretch it a little bit. The, um, 
you know, the connoisseurs are going to scream at that, say, don't touch my chocolate, you know? And there'll probably be revolts outside, but, uh, but, uh, but uh, like the English and their beer, right? Yeah, and yeah. So, and, but, uh, but, yeah, a lot of people are looking for these. And in Europe, you can actually put 5% of something else and still call it chocolate. I see. Uh, but we're not allowed here in Canada or the U.S. Fascinating. Doctor, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a great evening. Have a great Bye-bye. evening. That's, uh, that's Dr. Alex Maringoni, a professor in the University of Guelph's uh, Department of Food Science. So who knew that, you know what, the chocolate bars we love so much, they're technically candy bars because there are other things in there. Other than 100% chocolate. Focusing in right now on the Calgary construction industry. How's the industry doing as we come out of the COVID pandemic? Well, Bill Black is joining me right now to dig into all of this. Bill Black is the president and chief operating officer of the Calgary Construction Association. Bill, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much, Ted. It's a pleasure. Uh, I guess uh, looking big picture-wise, Bill, right now off the top, like uh, how how do you think overall the industry is doing in our city? Well, I think the industry came through a very long period of of really constrained economic conditions that was longer than we'd experienced uh, perhaps in the last four or five decades. It came through, though. It came through COVID. Um, and now it's really starting to see its resilience pay off in that work is picking up um, on all fronts. There's activity, there's more coming. Uh, All very good, healthy indicators for an industry that was almost at the end of its tether. Yeah, and I recall, like, right when the COVID uh, pandemic struck, yourself and your colleagues within the industry, you had to put all of these uh, super quick protocols in place just to keep the, you know, the, the people working on site, right? Absolutely. We really had to take the ownership. Yeah. Um, and, and the industry rallied in a way that in my 40 years in the industry, I have never seen people set aside their competitive natures, which are strong, and rally around the common challenge and share information so we could do just that. Yeah, to keep the crews working, right? To keep the crews exactly. working. Uh, how many Calgarians are, are employed in the industry right now compared to, say, I don't know, last year and maybe before the pandemic? Well, what, what, we're, what we saw in the StatsCan um, numbers that came out here just late last week was that um, currently, based on, on their methodology, we're looking at 82,800 Calgarians are employed in the construction industry um, in the month of uh, July, August. Wow, that's significant considering our population, you know, depending on which numbers you look at, we're like 1.2, 1.3 million. That's a lot of people. Yeah, and it's a number that, that, you know, we we derive quite a bit of um, information from. We're we're kind of back to where we were pre-pandemic. But the reality is if you go back to 2015, uh, before things really started to bite, um, we rarely get much above 90. Okay. And we can go down as far as the 60s. Really? So we're starting to trend up there. And, of course, yes, it is. That's that's a lot of Calgarians engaged in, in this industry. And I think sometimes our industry just gets 
relegated a little bit in people's minds. Uh, but we're a big part of the GDP and a big part of the economy. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. For sure. For sure. And, and, and just so the, I'm just looking at some of the notes here that, uh, you know, the construction industry, the fourth largest industry in the city. Uh, when you exactly. Compare, yeah, yeah, when you compare employment numbers, like behind retail, professional services, and healthcare, I mean that's that's nothing to turn your nose at. That that's significant. It is, and when you further extract these um, these numbers, and when you actually realize that within the construction industry, there are some very very large organizations, but the reality is, particularly within um, the commercial and residential side. 80% or so of the industry is comprised of small businesses with maybe 10 employees or less in the office. Yeah. Um, they may have 100-plus people in the field. But that is, a, that is an owner-operator business model that really drives the majority of the activity of the industry. So it's the community at Calgary represented in the industry too yeah that's a very good point bill i'm chatting with bill black right now on the drive uh, bill's the president and chief operating officer of the calgary construction association uh, finding out how things are going for uh, the men and women employed in the construction industry in our city um so, so i mean where where do you think we're going bill i mean are, are you projecting things will continue to grow or you, do you think we've plateaued bill what do you think i believe we're going to see growth i i think I think we would probably, as an industry, tend to hope that it's steady growth rather than sudden growth. Yeah. Um, we've, we've tended to see that in the past, and it's all great, but the, the big jumps tend to get followed by the big drops. So I, I, I would hope there's an opportunity for sustained growth. I think buildings are becoming more sophisticated, which needs more technical expertise. Um, the the demands on as communities grow, etc., for more intelligent development, people are concerned about the environmental impact of buildings. All an opportunity for the expertise in our industry, perhaps to step out from behind commoditization, which has tended to plague us, and step out and, and show exactly how much technical expertise we can bring to the table and really build the Calgary of the future. Yeah, and, and speaking to that, you know, building, you know, the Calgary of the future, th th are there any hurdles that are kind of holding things back or, or things that you would like to kind of, uh, you know, be moved to the side, so to speak, metaphorically, to kind of let your industry continue to flourish? I think, you know, there, there's, a, there's, there's a number of other dynamics in place. Of course, it's no secret that there have been supply chain challenges, yeah. both in terms of, cost escalation and, and instability as well as lead times impacting schedules. So that's, a, that's still playing out and is likely to play out for some time. Um, and of course, the 82,800 Calgarians employed in the construction industry is a great number, but it also explains why there is also a lot of... Ch the, the construction industry, like so many others, um, is, is struggling to find the labour and attract people into the industry and secure the resources to do the building. Yeah, the skilled labor and supply chain. Hearing that from so many different industries, Bill, right? So many Absolutely. different industries, yeah. You know what, Bill, I appreciate the conversation this afternoon. Uh, thanks for the update, and we'll have to check back in a few months down the road here. Really appreciate your interest, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, engage us. Uh, you're welcome. Have a great evening, Bill. Have a great evening.
You too. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. That's uh, that's Bill Black, the president and COO of the Calgary Construction Association. And just to give you a bit of uh, a little bit more perspective, as I mentioned, the construction industry is the fourth largest industry in the city. That's when you compare employment numbers behind retail, professional services, and healthcare. Uh, 9.2% of all jobs in the Calgary Central Market area are directly in the construction industry. That speaks to that 82,800 Calgarians when our total population, depending on what number you're looking at, anywhere between 1.2 and 1.4-ish in there. But that includes babies and people that have retired, right? So if you think of working-age Calgarians... 82, 800,000 Calgarians in one industry, the construction industry, that's a big, big, big sample size. And it should be seen as a barometer for, for the local economy because it's that significant, that much impact on the gross domestic product, of course, within the city of Calgary. And more Calgarians are employed in construction than they are in resource extraction industries like forestry, fishing, mining, quarrying, oil, and gas. There you go. facing one heck of a flu season uh, this winter in Alberta. Uh, there's been a huge spike of flu cases in Australia. And on the cautious side, you are being told by Alberta Health Services to expect that to happen here as well. Now, during the pandemic, of course, we did not have many influenza cases because COVID was the dominant virus that was making the rounds, right? But that is going to change, according to health experts. So with that in mind, in this installment of our back to work series we're chatting with an hr professional about what you as an employer or an employee should expect for the upcoming flu season and the expert we're talking with is andrew caldwell andrew of course is the manager of hr services with peninsula canada andrew thank you so much for being here today uh, thanks for having me, Dad. Uh, off the top, Andrew, are you having clients, uh, you know, with these questions regarding, you know, the flu season and coming out of the COVID pandemic and, and possible confusion? Are, are you getting asked about this right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's been a hot button item since kind of the start of fall and people going back to school and their uh, or their kids going back to school and coming home sick. So it is definitely a hot button topic at the moment in time. I bet. I bet indeed. Okay, so what advice do you have? Uh, you know, because many of the listeners of this show, uh, they either own or they're in management in small, medium-sized businesses and the like. Uh, what, what advice do you have for people like them who may be thinking that, they, you know, they may need to have a policy or two in place before we get into the thick of the flu season, right? Oh, I, I mean, yes. <laughs> Policies <laughs> are always step one in any good uh, approach to dealing with employees. And, I mean, we've just come out of an unprecedented time where I think people were really drawn attention to uh, general hand hygiene, right? Uh, if you're not feeling well, wash your hands. The minute you touch something, wash your hands. So reminding employees about these policies that you probably already have had in place for COVID might just need a, a little bit of a, a re-spruce or a rejig to just be for general flu season. How do we deal with it, right? Uh, if you're not feeling well, if you're someone who's able to work from home or your employees are able to work from home, tell them don't bother coming in that day, work from home, right? We can still get some productivity out of you if you're not feeling the greatest, and then you're not going to spread it around the office. But if you're one of those individuals who can't have people work from home or your job's not just one that can easily be done at home because it's a physical job or a labor job, again, physical hygiene, make sure you're washing your hands. 
implement that policy, make sure people are aware of it, and potentially Im- implement masks, right? I mean, we've now all learned the benefits that masks can help in, in reducing the spread of the common disease or the common cold or flu. Uh, why not make that a rule? Hey, you're not feeling well, snap on a mask. Yeah. Yeah. Try to do some social distancing. Uh, you, right? And, yeah. And have these policies. It, it, it seems it seems like a logical thing, you know, the hand hygiene and the and you know, staying home if you're feeling ill and that type of thing. But you're saying, Andrew, that you know, if you already have these policies in place, now is a great time to remind your employees, right? Absolutely. And and it's the you know, the old adage of it might be in writing, but if you're not applying it, it's not gonna work. So it's have a quick reminder with your employees. Just remind them casually and they're coming in. Be like, hey, we've revamped this policy. Please take a look. Have a meeting about it. It's it's going to be about ongoing communication and, and really making sure people are holding their end of that bargain. Um, unfortunately, management is also a lot of like herding cats. So you're going to have to herd everybody down that path and make sure they're all in, the, all in line, right? Yeah, no kidding. And I guess from a management perspective, if something does slip through the cracks and you do get a couple of cases of the flu that kind of crop up in the office, um, I guess having kind of protocols and, you know, who's going to backfill so-and-so's position, uh, those kind of uh, logical kind of dominoes to fall into place, it's probably good to get those kind of boned up and freshed up too, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we call them business resumption plans uh, in in the lingo that I like to use every now and then, um, where businesses plan what's going to happen in this type of emergency. Potentially a flu outbreak in the office is a good one. Who can back up who? Who would go to here? How long do we can we, you know, work without this individual? How can we give this person time off? So absolutely would be a strategy to have that conversation with management and be prepared should that come up. Chatting with Andrew Caldwell this afternoon on The Drive. Andrew is the HR Advisory Manager uh, with Peninsula Canada. Uh, We're looking ahead to the flu season this year. All indications are, uh, based on what happened in Australia, that we could be in for a doozy. It could be a heavy caseload of the flu this year. And looking to see what can be done uh, from the employee and the employer perspective. Now, Andrew, we focused on, you know, what management can do and the employer can do. Um, When it comes to the employee themselves, uh, what types of things can they do, you know, to make sure that uh, kind of they're in the loop with their manager to make sure that, you know, if flu cases do come into the office this year, that it doesn't kind of grind things to a halt? And, you know, it is a two-way street. So management's got to do their thing, but the employee's got to do their thing as well. So uh, it's a good point to focus on the employee. And so I would say an employee should have an open channel to their management uh, how to you know, you're calling in sick. Where do you go? How do you do it? When can you communicate it? Should it be communicated early or later? How how does your business operate? How What's your relationship like with your manager to ensure that these things can happen? Um, case in point, I've got my daughter in daycare, which I've now come to learn is just a hotbed for colds. <laughs> so I've been coming home to a daughter who doesn't know how to blow her nose, but coughs in my face. Cutest thing in the world, but grosses me out. Um <laughs> So I've I've let my manager know to say like, hey, here's the deal. I'm probably going to get a cold. Yeah. There's no way around it. It's going to happen. Uh, here's what I can do. What do you want me to do with this happens? How do you want me to communicate it to you? What what's our policy on it? So the employer can the employee can always ask the employer, what's our policy? Where do we stand? What do you want me to do? And kind of take that proactive approach, so that they're not pulling a fast one on management or they don't 
their management doesn't see it that way, right? It, yeah. It's that buy-in from the employee. So absolutely, the employee can do it. And again, hand-washing, right? If you know you're not feeling well, but you're not sure, let your manager know. Say, hey, this has come up. I've got a kind of a sore throat. I may not be nothing. Could be something. I went to a concert over the weekend. Uh, my hands are kind of sweaty. What would you like me to do? Yeah. I can wear a mask, hang out in the you know, seclusion office, or I can go home and work from home. What do you would, what would you like me to do? Yeah. That open dialogue, right? The last thing people like a manager wants to have is kind of have something out of left field. And if you can, you know, text them or send them an email like six o'clock the night before say, Hey, heads up. I just got coughed in the face by my daughter who has a cold, you know, like this may turn into nothing or it may be something. And I guess at least that way, then they have the balls rolling in their head and they know kind of like, you know, what they're going to do if you do get ill, right? Right. Absolutely. And, the, and all, all the times I've chatted with our clients and any of my friends and family, I always say, hey, just have an open dialogue with yeah. your employer. You don't need to be oversharing. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's absolutely a, such a thing as overshare. But you can just be honest and say, hey, here's the deal. Here's what's going on. Let me know how you want me to approach it. So I keep you up to speed. You know what I'm standing in and everybody's transparent. Yeah. The best yeah. way to approach it. Yeah, good communication is always effective for sure. Andrew, thank you so much for your insights this afternoon. As always, your wealth of information. Thank you for this. Thank you very much, Ted. Have yourself a great afternoon. You as well. That's Andrew Caldwell, HR Advisory Manager with Peninsula Canada, talking about how the flu season could impact employers and employees.